0: understand that our factories are our partners a very common american attitude towards factories particularly in china although it, it's also towards factories in the u.s is basically f you here's my money make my product you know you get it in and if it's bad quality you're like you f me
1: This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. Picture yourself spending four weeks with other high-level entrepreneurs in the northern mountains of Thailand this coming October and November 2017. It will be full of masterminds, workshops, advisors, like-minded entrepreneurs, and of course, some fun adventure. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to at theentrepreneurhouse.com. On today's show, we are joined by the e-commerce expert and founder of Fringe Sport, Peter Keller. Peter has been engulfed in e-commerce for the past 17 years. He launched Fringe Sport back in 2010 and grew it into a mid-seven-figure business that it is today. This episode was exciting because we chat about something that I find very interesting, manufacturing and production overseas. Peter has spent a lot of time working with factories in Asia. He shares with us how to find factories that will produce excellent products, be great partners working together, and also how to spot those factories that treat their employees well. Towards the end of the podcast, Peter shares the difference between the five, six, seven, and mid seven figure mentalities. It's a highly valuable episode with a brilliant business mind without further ado, let's welcome Peter Keller to the show. Welcome, Peter, to the podcast. How are you today?
0: I'm fantastic. I'm always fantastic. But today is a particularly fantastic day. <laughs> How are you doing?
1: I'm fantastic also. Peter, why don't you share with us why you're so fantastic?
0: <laughs> I will. So there are a couple of approximate reasons. Mm-hmm. I'm in Austin, Texas, which is beautiful this time of year. I've got a lovely family and kids and that sort of thing. But the more broad reason that i'm fantastic is that i had a rough couple of months a few months back Mm -hmm. and i did some soul searching after that rough couple of months and i thought you know what i can be amazing or miserable in my own head no matter what happens to me out there in the world so i'm just going to be fantastic no matter what and so about three months ago i adopted that mindset and every single day has been fantastic since then
1: that's awesome man I love those little tidbits of wisdom that we can learn that shifts our mental projection and can actually shift our protection of our entire day or week or year, really. But they're so easy to apply. And we were talking the other day, and you mentioned this little tactic that you used the other day. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be fantastic today because that's what Peter Keller would do. And lo and behold, I was fantastic. So thank you for that.
0: My pleasure. I love it
1: so let's dive into the podcast my friend tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became the entrepreneur that you are today
0: Uh, with pleasure so I was born on a stormy crazy day in Houston Texas in 1979 oh wait don't say my age
1: oh man, (laughs)
0: 79 whoops screwed up already no uh, yeah I'm Peter Keller I mostly live in Austin Texas Got a lovely wife and two beautiful little daughters. And what I'm principally known for these days is my business, Fringe Sport. That's F R I N G E S P O R T. And you can find us at fringesport.com. What we do at Fringe is we make barbells. That's where I say at parties, anyways. <laughs> but I'm, I'm an e-commerce guy from, geez, now going on, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years, which is crazy for me to think that. Wow. And we've got e-commerce website that principally sells to the U.S. and we're doing, let's say, mid-seven figures. We've been around for, what is it, six going on seven years now. And let's see, other than barbells and lifting weights i love travel my family reading and watches what else is there that you want to know
1: there's a lot my friend um (laughs) so (laughs) so you started french sports i think you said about seven years ago but you started in e-commerce did you say 16 or 17 years ago is that right
0: that's correct yeah go ahead
1: no i was just gonna ask you how did you get into that
0: so i've always wanted to sell things i've always enjoyed selling things to other people (laughs) and making money at doing so going back to middle school i was i was a boy scout and i got this magazine called boy's life magazine me too there you go i love it did you you didn't get your eagle scout though did you oh yeah
1: i did oh yeah
0: wow good for you man (laughs) i dropped out unfortunately but i'm i'm very let's not say in awe but but i respect People who went all the way through and got their Eagle Scout. So good on you. Thank you. So I got Boys Life magazine. And I don't know if you remember, but if you page to the back of Boys Life magazine, they had these ads for all these like super cool, scammy little yes. like knives or tools or things like that. Yes. <laughs> so I used to buy those off the magazine at a mail order and then sell them to my friends. And so that was my first real business venture was buying things at the back of Boys Life and selling them to my friends. But uh, kind of fast forward a little bit, I went to college, and I actually got a film degree from college because one of my buddies told me, hey, you get to watch movies, and you can get a bachelor's degree. And I was like, this is amazing, best deal ever. But I got you know, fairly into my RTF for film degree and realized I didn't want to go and be a PA, a production assistant. You know, making $20,000 a year and getting people coffee on their film. Mm -hmm. And I thought a lot about me liking to sell things. And this was around 1999 and 2000. It was before the bubble had burst in any case. And I thought, you know what? E-commerce is really cool. I'm going to do e-commerce. So I got a job at a company that is here in Austin called Living Direct. And they sell small appliances online. And I happened to work for 10 years for Living Direct, yeah, which was pretty crazy uh, to me then and still to me now. And working for Living Direct, I was reporting directly to the CEO, and I got to pretty much work in all areas of their business. So one of the ways I think about it is I got to make a lot of – I made them a lot of money, but I also made a lot of expensive mistakes – on what they call OPM, other people's money. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much. <laughs> Rick and Living Direct. <laughs> so while at Living Direct, I learned internet marketing, or at least a number of skills in internet marketing, including how to do pay-per-click advertising, which at the beginning was overture, and then after that, you know, Google AdWords took over and AdWords and Facebook are you know running away with it at this point. And I also got the opportunity to travel to China maybe 20 times or so in a space of about five years, maybe it's 15 times when I think about it, and learn how to design and manufacture products, in our case, appliances, ice makers and air conditioners, Mm -hmm. with factories in China. And I got to learn as I went. Uh, Also, in that time, I got my MBA and that's really how I cut my teeth on entrepreneurship and e-commerce. Well, maybe not entrepreneurship, but e-commerce.
1: So you worked for Living Direct for 10 years. And when did you come to the point when you were
0: like, okay, I want to start my own thing? My first interview with yeah. Living Direct. <laughs> no, no joke. Yeah. In my first interview with, with the CEO of Living Direct, Rick, he said, what are you going to be doing in five years? And I told him, I'm going to quit here and start my own business. And he laughed and I was, you know, I was young and cocky and I was like, oh, you laugh, but it's the truth. So it turns out that, you know, it was 10 years instead of five years. Mm -hmm. But what happened was as I was working at Living Direct, I really had this entrepreneurial itch, but I was able to do all these interesting things at that business that really allowed me to grow my skills. And so it really put that itch off for a while. But after maybe seven years or so, I had just had enough of working for someone else, kind of anyone else, and thought back to what would really make me happy and remembered all my entrepreneurial dreams. And so I actually started up a few businesses on the side. I started doing some consulting for product development with a few other companies. I actually did a little bit of sporting-related e-commerce for myself on the side, and nothing really took off but as I thought about it later, the reason that nothing took off is because I was keeping my best self, either for like me and my family or for Living Direct, my employer, and I wasn't giving my full effort to these ventures on the side. And when I looked even deeper in myself, it was because I was afraid of failure. And I thought, well, if these things fail and I've not put 100% into them, then I'm I'm not a failure because Mm -hmm. I can always say, well, it's because I 100% into them. So this all came to a head in around early 2010, I believe, when I had (laughs) been told by a ton of friends to read the four hour work week. And I finally succumbed to all these different friends telling me I needed to read it. Uh, I read it in the most of it in the back of a SUV bouncing through the Kuwaiti desert on a week-long trip to visit my father, who was at the time helping the Kuwaiti government with business development for oil fields. And when I was reading it, and maybe it was just the heat, or maybe it was bouncing around, (laughs) but all these things of my brain suddenly clicked. And I said, you know what? I need to give something, my own venture, my full force of effort, and really go hard at it. And if it fails, just accept that it fails. And if it You know, if I'm not willing to do that, then I need to shut up about my entrepreneurial dreams and just dedicate myself to being, you know, Mr. Corporate Guy, which, you know, it's not a bad fate, but uh, I'm glad I did what I did. So at that time, I was very interested in CrossFit and I was very into sports in terms of me playing sports and working out and trail running and stuff like that. And I I did run through a little bit of a niche selection exercise that I made up myself. But at the end of it, I thought, you know what, it's going to cost me probably about $2,000 to bring in an MVP, a minimum viable product, you know, an idea that I stole, of course, from Lean Startup of some equipment that might be used by CrossFit gyms. And if I can sell them some of this equipment, then I can probably sell them some other stuff, too. So I brought in some gymnastics rings, which are just rings that You would throw up over a pull up bar and do pull ups or do some muscle ups, which is a CrossFit exercise or bodyweight rows or something like that. Spent about two grand to bring those in, threw up a Shopify website and started going to every CrossFit gym in Austin and saying, hey, buy my rings. Started sending them out for free to bloggers and saying, hey, buy my rings. Put them on eBay and threw some AdWords out there and started trying to slang rings. So that, that was how I got started.
1: And this was seven years ago, correct?
0: It was seven years ago. Yeah, it was 2010. Uh, I think like August, around August 1st, 2010 is when we notched our first sale.
1: And so you're still growing French sports and imagine you're planning on doing that for a while now. But I've noticed, how many products do you guys have now, Peter?
0: We've probably, the last time I really looked at a SKU count, it was 500 SKUs. I would suggest that I probably have been lax in looking at a SKU count recently, uh-huh. and we're probably around 700, 800 at this point. But, you know, an SKU could be like, here's a green t shirt in medium, and then here's a blue t shirt in medium. So I would say if you're thinking about more or less unique products, we've probably got, you know, about 100 products that might have different weights or colors spread out among all of them
1: how did it start off for you did you quit your job cold turkey and then start french sport or did you do it alongside with your job before you made the leap
0: i did it alongside with my job for Uh a year and so the first year uh so our first full year of operation was 2011 and 2010 is when we notched our first sale but i think we had like ten thousand dollars worth of sales or something like that in 2010 so it barely counts but then 2011, we did $100,000 worth of sales with no employees. You know, We did get a warehouse towards the end of the year, but it was just me and my business partner just hustling. And we both had jobs, and we're just doing this on the side. So after that year of $100,000, it was a real decision point for me and, and also for my business partner. So I had been steeped in this four-hour workweek stuff. And one of the things, if you recall... The Four Hour Work Week book, Tim Ferriss talks a lot about building a muse. So, as I recall it, you know, forgive me if I'm slightly off on this definition. A muse is basically a business that's more or less passive income, or at least doesn't make you work on it very often, mm-hmm. and you can then go and you know live your life outside of that business. And so, I was initially thinking that fringe sport could be that sort of business. You know, oh, this will be amazing. We'll, you know, work hard right now, create a business that we can then, you know, just kick off profit and cash to us and we can go live on a beach. And after that $100,000 year, it two things became apparent to me. One, fringe was going to be a really bad muse because it was going to require a lot of time and energy. Uh, Let's say three things became apparent. (laughs) Really bad muse, going to require a lot of time and energy. Number two, it also had the potential to be a really great business for our customers and for ourselves and then three tied in with two is that i really enjoyed working on fringe and so uh, i was making a you know very nice six figure income i was heading a staff of 11 or 12 people at the time with my corporate job uh, i was on expense account i was traveling business class to asia uh, so I had actually a pretty cushy gig over there, mm-hmm. so it was a real, a real <clears throat> hard choice. I think where I was choosing between comfort and the adventure of the unknown, and thankfully, and and huge thanks to my wife who was you know game to leap off into the unknown with me we chose the unknown and it's been, you know, one of the defining decisions of my life. And I'm super thankful that I did, but I I went from making six figures in 2011, uh, when I was working my main gig and this was a side hustle, so to speak to making nothing in 2012. So I, I took no salary or no funds from the company for 10 months. And then when I did start taking funds, I started paying myself $400 a week. So that was, uh, Pretty pretty big step down, but uh, but it's grown from there.
1: (laughs) What are some things that you did in that transition? Did you have some money put aside to take care of you during that time when you didn't have an income? When you started paying yourself four hundred dollars a week, is that basically your living expenses for food? Were you just more frugal during that time, or so? So, what are the things that you did to stay above water?
0: So, my wife was still working, and she at the time was working for the University of Texas. So we did have good health insurance. Uh, One thing to mention, uh, you know, God bless Valerie. She let me quit my six-figure job when we had one kid and another one on the way. Wow. Which is just, uh, in hindsight, is crazy. Like if, if Peter from seven years ago came to me and said, Hey, my wife is pregnant. Plus, I got a kid. Plus, I got this six figure job. <laughs> e- even me, having gone through what I've gone through with Fringe, which is is you know doing very well, I would say, man, this is a bad bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is not the time. Yeah. But <clears throat> what I did was I had some funds saved up. Uh, we also did have my wife bringing in some some money. We did notch down significantly our uh, living expenses and our standard of living, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what we did. And we just tried to tough it out as long as we possibly could and just tried to take money out of the company as late as we possibly could and as minimally as we possibly could so that we could use the money in the company for working capital.
1: Now, fast forward to today and you guys are a mid seven figure business. And I think you mentioned in 2012 you were an 11 person team at six figures. So, I'm curious how big is your team now?
0: So, we're about 15 people now. And it's interesting actually, we got up to about 30 people mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. That said, a number of them were part-time and kind of warehouse people. But we've since slimmed the team down very significantly. And it's been a real, first of all, it was a real learning experience, slimming the team down. And then it's been interesting to me to build the team back up. And uh, if any of my previous employees are listening, love, love, love you guys. I just wasn't a good enough leader back then. But as far as my current employees go, it's crazy how much more productive they are than kind of previous uh, iterations of, of the structure of the business.
1: What are some of the things that you lacked beforehand as a leader as opposed to now?
0: Yeah, that's huge. Great question. So a lot of people have heard the phrase delegation versus abdication, maybe it's not even a phrase, but but you've got these dualities of pushing something out to someone else, mm-hmm. if you're leading them or managing them, you can either delegate a task to them, or you can abdicate a task to them. And in the early days of fringe, I was, I thought I was delegating, but I was 100% abdicating. So a couple of markers that I just look at in my mind and and think, man, how could I realize that I wasn't doing this? Is I was very fond of giving someone a relatively high-ish level goal and then saying, You figure it out, you know, or you know I, I I hope, and I don't believe I ever said anybody to anybody, Hey, that's your job. That's what I hired you for, But I know I certainly thought that in my head, right that I'd say, you know, hey, you know, grow traffic to the website, or here are our traffic goals. Uh, And the employee says, well, you know, how am I going to grow traffic? Ah, you figure it out. You know, that's a pretty egregious example. But absolutely, you know, I did things like that in the past. And that's frustrating for the employee. And then it's frustrating for me. And it's not good for the business. I mean, it's, it's just bad all the way around. And now what I do is so I have a relatively new business partner, uh, been partners with him a little bit over two years, and one of the things when we became partners is he told me he wanted me to be able to do everything in my business. And when he told me that, I said, yeah, I can do everything in my business. And he said, okay, walk me through processing and order. And I said, <laughs> uh, well, you know, somebody orders on our Shopify website, And then it goes into our Bright Pearl back end. And then we ship it out through ShipStation. And he said, no, no, no. How do you do all of those steps? And then I said, "Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I tell somebody how to do that. Or I tell somebody to do that. And then he said, nope, not the right answer. So I, I feel like in 2015, I was back to school in my own business learning how we did order processing, mm. learning how we pack boxes and ship things out, learning exactly how we're driving traffic, how we're doing our email marketing. Because prior to that, I, I think I had too much of an ego. And I was like, I've built this business, blah, blah, blah. I'm so successful. And now it's like, I mean, I've built something and I'm very proud of, or sorry, we've built something. And I'm very proud of what we've built at Fringe But I mean, we're a super small fish compared to kind of, you know, a a number of other businesses out there. You know, there's nothing to get my head up my own, you know, you know what about. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so one big difference is is that delegation versus abdication. I'm sure I do abdicate still at some point, you know, at some points these days, but I try very hard to understand everything that I'm asking everyone to do in a very granular way. Uh, I was listening to another podcast. It might have even been one of your episodes, The Entrepreneur House, recently, and somebody talked about hiring employees to scale processes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but not invent processes. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom to that. Sorry, I kind of trailed off there. <laughs> I was like,
1: said it? Uh- <laughs> So I'm kind of curious, Peter, about your production and manufacturing. So are you having things produced in China and then storing them in your warehouse in the States and then sending them out to your clients?
0: Yeah, we absolutely are. So um, we source multinationally. And what that means these days is that we're getting about 60% of our product manufactured in China. About 20% comes from the U.S., different factories here and there. And then the remainder is coming from Taiwan, Pakistan, and Malaysia. And we are doing mostly what's called ODM manufacturing original, oh shoot, what is it? Original design manufacturing or contract manufacturing. So basically, we have plans for a product, and then a factory takes those plans and builds to our plans. Uh, We do also some OEM. So OEM. Sometimes gets a bad rap and I almost hesitate to say it, but it's basically like there's a design that's already existing with a factory and we go and we say, hey, either we want that design or, you know, oh, it's blue. We want it purple. All right. We designed it. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. But we we do that for a minority of our products.
1: Now, this is something that really kind of intrigues me because I've never dabbled in it. And you had a lot of experience with your first job going to China and meeting manufacturers, but you have many of them now all across the world. So I'm curious, how do you find the right manufacturer for your product and to know that this is going to be a good company to work with to build your product?
0: Yeah, great question. And one thing from your previous question that I forgot about, we actually do ship almost everything to our warehouse here in Austin, Texas. So I've got about 40,000 square feet mm-hmm. here in Austin where we're bringing containers in or truckloads in from wherever the, the place may be, the factory may be. We're storing them in our warehouse, and then we're shipping onesies, twosies to our customers. So that that is how we're getting product out the door. Now, in terms of finding a factory, this is something that I really used to hang my hat on back in the day, And, you know, even did some consulting, helping other companies do this sort of thing. So let's say, let's make a real long story short. I used to rely a lot on overseas trips to China, for example, to the Canton Fair or to other trade shows to meet a lot of factories face to face and then go visit them. You know, I would literally be, you know, either in China or in the U.S. or Taiwan or wherever and go visit the factories take a look at the product that they're making, see what their quality standards look like, you know, are they ISO 9001 or anything like that. Uh, Now what I do, and I used to actually advise people not to just go off of Alibaba, but to be honest, now what I do is my very first thing I do is I have an idea for a product, is I go search Alibaba, and I look for either that product or a product that is built with similar manufacturing processes. So, for example, I've been toying around with building a rower recently, which is a secret, so don't tell anybody. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, one of the things that I've been looking for in Alibaba is factories that can produce the fan for the rower, which is the, in my opinion, is the most unique or most difficult thing to manufacture, is that fan component for the rower. So then... Once I find a number of factories that can produce that, then I start reaching out to them. And in the past, I would, of course, just reach out to them personally and, you know, via email, via Alibaba, via Skype or whatever. Now, what I do these days is I do have an employee who does that for me. So, and in many cases, some cases he's finding the factories. In some cases, I shoot him over a bunch of factories and then have him initiate conversations with those factories. And then what we do from the initial conversation is we actually move a little bit slower than a lot of people do. I really, really, really like to go and visit these factories in person because I'm going over to China three times a year anyways. Mm -hmm. So it's not that much more difficult or expensive to wait around a little bit and for me to go visit the factory in person. And it cuts through so much bullshit on both sides. So a lot of people here in the U.S., who are manufacturers or who manufacture with Chinese factories, for example, they're always telling me, like, oh, you know, there are all these trading companies that are trying to BS me saying that they're a factory or we're having these quality issues or, oh, the factory's not listening to me or they don't respond to me or stuff like that. The reality is I actually have very few problems with that, and I think that a lot of that reason is that I go over to China and meet these people who are running the factories or who are doing the sales face-to-face. I think that that's – in today's age of instant message and you know Snapchat and, and all this stuff, I'm, I, I'm trying to sound as fuddy-duddy and old as I possibly can. <laughs> but there's so much to visiting and meeting people face-to-face and breaking bread with them and, and sharing a little bit of your story and hearing their story and their journey. And I really have not had a lot of these – I mean, of course, I've had problems in manufacturing both in China and the U.S., But I've not had any horrible, horrible horror stories, and I think a lot of it is from meeting the factories face-to-face. But anyway, so once I meet the factories, uh, I see what their quality looks like. I see kind of what their style of business is, and I like to work with a factory that is roughly looking for customers my size, or maybe looking for customers who are a little bit bigger than I am, but not incredibly bigger than I am. And I used to call it the the Goldilocks principle, where you know, you don't want a factory that's way too small, you don't want a factory that's way too big, you want a factory that's just right, you know, after Goldilocks and the porridge and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is a way too small factory is going to work their butts off to impress you in the sales process, but potentially their quality is not going to be sufficient when they're actually producing product. A way too large factory, you may be able to worm your way in with that factory, and and I've done it many a time. But when push comes to shove, and a larger customer says, "I need my product produced," you know, guess who's going to get bumped? Right, and and that's going to be me. So I try to find factories that are more or less ideally sized for what I'm, what I'm, you know, producing and what kind of customer I am, and or maybe just a little bit larger than I am, so I can grow into being an awesome customer for them. And then the other thing that I really try to do is I try to, again, with these visits and and whatnot, understand that our factories are our partners. A very common American attitude towards factories, particularly in China, although it's also towards factories in the U.S., is basically, F you, here's my money, make my product. Mm -hmm. And then you you get it in, and if it's bad quality, you're like, you effed me, you Chinese, you know, charlatan, or <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm trying to not curse too much. I actually do curse a lot, but I'm trying to <laughs> curse, you know? But so there's a lot more curse words involved. <laughs> but the reality is, uh, you know, my opinion has been since the start, if you get poor quality product, it is your fault for not vetting the factory appropriately, for not communicating with the factory appropriately, and, you know, for screwing up. And that's an attitude that has served me well in sourcing product from multinational suppliers for going on 12 years now. So I know that was kind of a meandering answer to your question. No, that was great. That was great. Some value out of that.
1: Yeah, no, that, I think that was spot on. I do have another question, and this is because I'm very novice in this area. A lot of people, I think, have this fear of manufacturing overseas, especially in China, because of the bad rep that some of these third world countries get for sweatshops. And so I am i think this would be some great tips from you is how do you determine if a factory is going to be a good partner and also an ethical partner to do business with?
0: That's a great question. So... How do I determine if a factory is going to be a good partner for us? So for me, I've been doing this so long that a lot of it is internalized. But here's a real quick checklist, and I'm just going to give this to you off the top of my head. So if I start rambling, I'll I'll try to reel it back. So first of all is that kind of Goldilocks principle like I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. You want the factory to be appropriately sized to you. Uh, number two is going to be look at the other customers that are getting product out of this factory. Are they brands that you know that have a great excuse me, a great reputation for quality in your market, or are they brands that have a crappy rep- reputation for quality? Because the chance is if the brand has a great reputation for quality, they're probably not going to do business with a factory that can't hit that reputation for quality. So that's a a really great uh, trick there. The other thing is, when you go and visit the factory, if you are able to go visit the factory, you can, in fairly short order, start to figure out what sorts of factories are going to produce great quality. So one thing that a lot of people overlook is, is it a clean factory? Now, clean can be relative (laughs) in China versus the US, for example, but if the factory is well run, it should look like it's well run. Mm. You know, I I remember the first place that I was getting my gymnastic rings out of, and this was back in 2010. It was not a great factory. And so when I went to go visit them, they were beside, they were a multi-story factory that was beside kind of a side road in China. There was inventory just piled everywhere both whip like work in process or like raw materials mm-hmm. as well as finished goods just piled haphazardly in <laughs> piles everywhere and when i asked for samples of like this product or that product the lauban the factory boss just grabbed me samples off of the piles of crap you know, inventory <laughs> that were lying around and just gave me samples so uh, one thing to mention is that if you're at a good factory and you see something cool like going down the production line, you're like, oh, hey, can I have that as a sample? The answer is probably gonna either be no, or it's gonna be like, oh, I'll have my guy grab that for you. Because they need to actually inventory in terms of like a physical inventory count mm-hmm. that product that's leaving. So if somebody's just willy nilly grabbing product and handing it to you, that means that there's some fairly severe failure in their systems and processes that's probably going to mean that they're not going to create good quality product. So another thing that I would mention here in terms of getting good quality product is looking at what the internal controls that the factory has for product and quality is. So a good factory actually cares about the quality that they produce. A bad factory probably doesn't. And a bad factory probably is going to have quality standards imposed upon it by their customers, whereas a good factory, of course, will have their customers' quality standards, but will also have internal quality standards and measures to try and track quality that they have uh, imposed themselves. So those are a few kind of shortcuts there. Now, in terms of you're talking kind of unlike the human rights, ethical sustainability aspect of factories. So that's something that is helped hugely by the fact that I actually go over to China and see the factories in my own two eyes. Yeah. So the reality of the situation is a lot of people will say, oh, a Chinese factory worker only makes a few dollars an hour or something like that compared to a U.S. factory worker making $15, 30 $40 an hour or something like that. The reality is you have to understand that there are different standards of living. So just because someone is paid what in a knee-jerk way seems like a low salary or a low wage to you, that may not actually be a bad situation for that person. However, human rights violations are absolutely a bad situation no matter what, no matter you know what nation you're in or how much that person gets paid. So one of the things that I do is I actually work with a third-party inspector who checks up on these things, and I also go and inspect the factories myself. Now, I can't tell you that I'm any sort of, geez, I don't know, you know, United Nations inspector to try and figure <laughs> yeah. out the welfare of these factories, but I will tell you, it's pretty easy to see the places that are terrible <laughs> yeah. and the places that are pretty good. You know, one thing, for example, I I remember I went one time to a foundry in China, and I I was at that point with one of my employees who's an American, a Westerner, and when we left the factory, he looked at me, and he said, that factory reminds me of Mordor, which is the the place where Sauron lives in the Lord of the Rings. You know, it's a volcano with ash here and and everything. And so this was an iron foundry with, you know, molten iron. And he said, like, you know, people must, like, what keeps someone from falling into the iron at this place <laughs> and, and burning alive? And the reality is, like, nothing. They, they had they're pouring molten iron into a hole in the ground. And so <laughs> it's like, holy crap! You know, <laughs> we don't want to do business with this factory. Yeah. Because, it, like, geez, I, I, I don't even know. And what would happen if someone fell into the molten iron hole? Like, I don't know if you could do anything in any case when someone falls into Muldronaut. Right, right. But but at this place, it would probably just be like, well, look at them and, and, you know, cover your ears so the screams aren't too loud. I'm sorry, I'm getting like way, way <laughs> off. But, but suffice to say, when I saw that, I'm like, we're not doing business with these guys. Right. You know, we just can't. So, uh, you know, in addition to the third-party service for inspection that also does a little bit of human rights watch, you know, I go and visit the factories. I also talk with the factory bosses. Like, some factory bosses... Just like some care about quality from some level of intrinsic or internal caring about quality, some of them care about their workers and some of them don't. Now, the caring about the workers may take a different form than it does in the U.S. or in the West. So, for example, in China or in like a Confucian society, there is a lot of what I would call almost paternalistic feelings towards the employees. Mm-hmm. So the factory boss or Lao Ban might treat the employees to some extent like his children or or kind of like inferiors to him in the social order, but in a, again, paternalistic way rather than, let's say, a feudal or like slave society way. And so the paternalistic stuff I can live with because I, I believe, based on my Lao Wai, my foreigner, my limited understanding of the culture, you know, that that's a pretty key part of the culture just like you respect your elders in china or whatever or whatever that sounds bad just like you know it built in the Confucian society is the the filial duty and respect to elders that's a way better way of saying it um but you know if a factory owner basically treats his his workers like slaves or like vassals then then that's really not a good thing yeah so again another rambling answer for you as i want to give
1: (laughs) some incredible information thanks Peter, I want to ask you one final question that I think you can give some good feedback on. And I've noticed quite a bit of commonality in in a lot of these answers, which is to be expected for this question, specifically amongst different guests that we've had on the show. But I want to ask you what you believe for yourself is the difference between your five-figure mentality, six-figure mentality, seven-figure mentality, and then also I want to address that to mid-seven-figure mentality.
0: I love it. Great question. Thank you so much. Yeah. So five-figure mentality was the side hustle mentality. I was working another job. I was just like, hey, how can I make some money on the side? I had mentioned before, you know, Tim Ferriss and the 4-Hour Work Week, and I was just thinking, how can I build passive income was basically my five figure mentality. And particularly in e-commerce where I am, I think it's actually not that difficult for one person, you know, a solo operator to generate five figures or possibly, uh, well, sorry, five figures, six figures, you know, potentially with Amazon leveraging yourself, even seven figures at this point. So, I think that, and actually now that I think about it, I think five and six figures, I think of as as a like hustle and yeah mentality like that. I think that once you start getting into seven figures in e commerce, you really have to start thinking about how to leverage yourself and how to teach employees how to do the things that you might intrinsically know how to do. And something really interesting about that, I can't remember where I read it. I read all these things like all over the place and then can't remember where I get some of them from. And it talked about how the strength of a founder can become the weakness of a company. And part of that is because a founder is really good at doing that thing. And so they may delay on passing that down or they may even poorly train their employees to do that thing because they always... Either it's an ego thing and they're like, well, I do this best out of everybody, so I'm not going to, you know, I can't find anyone to do it as well as me. Or because they just think that they're so great that they don't train appropriately. So I think when you cross into that seven-figure threshold, you have to really fight some of those battles. Now, when we talk about the mid-seven figures where I am now, you know, the mindset becomes much more around leading and managing people, so I really feel like I've let a lot of employees down in fringe's history as I've figured this out, figured out my path to leadership and my path to growth. And by the way, it's you know, it's never gonna end until I die. So hopefully it, you know, continues being on the up upward mm-hmm. uh, trajectory. But I really do feel I'm a much better leader and manager now than I was you know two years ago or even one year ago and I continue to work really really hard on myself in developing myself just a personally as a a human as a man as a husband as a father and also as a leader and manager in my business
1: how are some ways that you personally work on your leadership so you mentioned all those areas of your life what are some specific things
0: Yeah, so in terms of specifically working on leadership, I am a member of a group called EO, Entrepreneurs' Organization, and leadership is one of the things that I have been explicitly working on in that group. So EO provides tools and a structure and a community to work on a lot of things that are self-selected, and for me, I've chosen to work on leadership. So I've been taking a lot of the training that they offer, and I've also been forcing myself into leadership positions with EO, Entrepreneurs' Organization. Additionally, I joined Toastmasters recently, which is explicitly to help with communication and public speaking, but implicitly, I'm trying to be a better leader and a better communicator. So communication is a huge part of leadership, obviously. Other than that, I have been working with a coach on my leadership skills, and he's been guiding me in a few different areas that I then go and read and practice on. And yeah, then just with my own self-directed reading of both books and blog posts, um, I'm working on the leadership side.
1: Excellent stuff, my friend. Peter, if the listeners want to reach out to you, where's the best place they could find you at?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, if you have a really short question, and that's just at Pete Keller, that's P-E-T-E-K-E-L-L-E-R. Uh, we also are at Fringesport.com if you want to buy a barbell. <laughs> <laughs> and then my personal email address at Fringesport.com is Peter at Fringesport.com. And I make sure as many people as possible know that email address, Peter at Fringesport.com. I do police my own inbox I don't have any VA or anything like that in there, and I do respond to all my own emails. So yeah. hit me up.
1: Very cool. Peter, we got to give you a huge thank you for coming onto the show, and thanks for sharing all your tips and tricks and bits of wisdom with us. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, my friend.
0: Chris, it's been a pleasure. Prazer.
1: And listeners, thank you for joining us once again. And we're going to sign off there for today. Hope you enjoyed the show, and see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Cheers. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six- and seven-figure entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day-to-day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for attendees, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it this year our main event will be held in chiang mai thailand it is four weeks from october 26th to november 24th and held for six and seven figure entrepreneurs only it will be full of workshops masterminds advisors co-working and fun weekend social events be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible this event will fill up fast for those of you that are interested and have some questions be sure to contact us through theentrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact We will respond as soon as possible. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.